Welcome to AI Ethics and Radiology, Emory University's Center for Ethics podcast on the applications of artificial intelligence in radiology. Today's podcast will examine a variety of issues related to the role of organizations in developing standards for imaging technology and how those organizations might navigate concerns over conflicts of interest among their memberships. Our faculty will also discuss the prospects of artificial intelligence facilitating radiologic services across the globe, especially bringing those services to underserved areas. My name is John Banja. I'm a professor at the Center for Ethics at Emory University. I'm delighted to be able to interview two outstanding professionals in the field of imaging science, Ms. Michelle Yee and Dr. Geraldine McGinty. At the age of 13, Michelle Yee was offered a full scholarship to college in the United States, from which she graduated at age 16. Shortly thereafter, she received her first job offer to be an advanced analytics engineering consultant. She founded and has led the Innovation for Good program at Slalom Consulting, which assists organizations from around the world to utilize cutting-edge technologies and analytics to further their missions. Michelle has headed the IEEE Committee on Standards Development for Artificial Intelligence, Ethics, and Computer Vision. She's been a leader in the Girls Who Code program, which is an international effort to provide after-school clubs for third to 12th grade girls to explore coding, in addition to offering summer and college programs. The goal of Girls Who Code is to close the gender gap on technology and to change the image of what a programmer looks like and does. Ms. Yee was a Woman of the Year finalist in the Women in Technology competition, and in between professional positions in information technology, Michelle played in the violin section of the New York Philharmonic. Dr. Geraldine McGinty currently serves as the president of the American College of Radiology. She did her medical training in Ireland at the National University and then came to the United States for a residency at the University of Pittsburgh, where she was chief resident. She did a fellowship in women's imaging at the Massachusetts General Hospital. While working at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, she completed an MBA at Columbia University. Dr. McGinty is an internationally recognized expert in imaging economics. She served as an advisor to the current procedural terminology editorial panel, the Joint Commission, and the National Quality Forum. She was chair of the American College of Radiology's Commission on Economics and was the radiology member of the American Medical Association's Relative Value Update Committee from 2012 to 2016. In 2014, she joined the faculty at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York City. As well as her clinical practice there, she serves as Chief Strategy Officer and Chief Contracting Officer for the Weill Cornell Physician Organization's more than 1,600 members. In May 2018, she was elected Chair of the ACR's Board of Chancellors, the first woman to hold this office. Her published work is focused on payment models for imaging. Recently, she's focused on the impact of artificial intelligence on medical imaging and has spoken at the Turing Institute and to the World Health Organization focus group on AI in healthcare. In 2015, she was voted radiology's most effective educator by the readers of Aunt Minnie. She has more than 14,000 followers on Twitter. So Michelle and Geraldine, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast on the ethical role of professional organizations in the age of artificial intelligence. I'd like to begin with this question to Geraldine and then to you, Michelle. 
So Geraldine, you, you are the current president of the ACR, and it's always struck me that professional organizations like that uh, have to be kind of especially squeaky, morally, ethically clean, uh, especially by the way of projecting their trustworthiness to the public and to their members. So I'm wondering if you can comment on the occasional ethical challenges that ACR might experience, given the fact that probably sometimes you feel like the organization has to be all things to all people. Well, thank you, John. It's a great question. And to your point about all things to all people, the ACR is a large and multifaceted organization. You know, apart from being a community of the professionals who deliver imaging care and imaging science, we are an accrediting organization for imaging studies. We are a research organization. We, we administer multi-center trials. Uh, we have a responsibility in, in terms of professional credentialing. Um, uh, you know, membership in your professional society is a critical part of getting privileges in, in, in hospital systems, for example. So we, we are multifaceted in our activities. Um, it, but for me, I think it, it starts with the fact that we are, as healthcare professionals, obligated to you know, do no harm, you know, our Hippocratic Oath. Um, so our patients are relying on us. And, and what I think is, is particularly important when our patients are relying on us, as opposed to other medical professionals, is that what we do involves radiation. So there's something that they can't see that perhaps they don't know a lot about that they're trusting us to use on their behalf in a safe and effective way. Um, you know, I think there are many, there are many discussions and decisions um, that we have to think through, whether it's about um, how we develop practice guidelines or how we develop accreditation programs and make sure that we appropriately balance rigor in those programs and access to care. Um, how we administer our trials clearly um, there are always ethical considerations when you do any kind of research. How do you make sure that your research cohorts are appropriately diverse? So um, what I will say about the organization is that we have a robust approach to those types of issues that's centered on our patients and the responsibility we have to those patients. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think you hit the nail squarely on the head when you were talking about do no harm and especially to advance the good of, uh, of all of your constituencies, but ultimately, of course, patients, because uh, without them, you would not uh, exist. So, uh, Michelle, uh, can I turn it over to you? You've uh, had leadership positions with the IEEE. Um, how do you take this question of, of trustworthiness and uh, a kind of ethical moral obligation to your constituents? Yeah, I think similar to what Geraldine said um, about the ACR, you know, IEEE as well as a massive organization responsible for a lot of different facets around technology and engineering specifically. Um, and when it comes to AI, which is more in the space where I specifically play, um, you know, one of the things that we are largely responsible for is the development of, let's say, standards and like best practices um, and developing those standards in a way where we are um, seen as trustworthy and, you know, mitigating any potential biases that we might have from technology vendors or, um, you know, different firms or companies that have a say as well in terms of what they think um, should be the best standards around AI and ethics, et cetera. So um, it's, it's definitely embedded into everything that we do. I think one way that 
IEEE tries to combat this that I think was also hinted um, in the methods of ACR was that we rely on a lot of robust practices and policies. So when I talk about standards development, there's it's completely embedded in the concept of consensus because there's there can be hundreds of people working on us on a given standard. Um, and when you think about like, okay, how do you truly get kind of like the best out of these, let's say group of hundred people or however many people while not being biased toward having like, you know, 60 people that work in high tech, for example, um, it, that general consensus and distribution of kind of backgrounds and interdisciplinary nature is um, baked into how we do like the balloting, the development, drafting, um, and voting process for developing these kinds of standards. So Michelle, let me ask you, and then I want to ask Geraldine, because both of you mentioned standards and standards are very dear to my heart. When, when I hear standards, I hear required as opposed to guidelines, right, which are suggested. So when you are in the midst of developing a standard, uh, clearly there's a lot riding on that because even though there may be uh, a multiple standards for handling a particular situation, nevertheless, they kind of constitute that threshold of care. You said then that you were using a kind of a consensus uh, uh, approach to, to developing the standards. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, um, and you know, I think what's also important is at the get-go, we recognize that not every standard will be perfect upon first release or publication, right? Mm -hmm. be things that we have never considered in the AI and ethics realm, as I think you know, we're all starting to see as it becomes more commercialized. So um, I'll just start go backwards a bit and say, you know, hey, usually how it works is the first stage is to propose or submit a specific topic um, around. Let's say AI ethics, and we could use medical imaging as an example, um, or sometimes it's even broader than that, just AI and ethics. So once the topic is proposed, um, usually there's kind of a core organizing committee that comes around and they handle all the logistics, all the balloting processes, they vet people who can participate in the standards development. And then you typically go next into actually drafting what are the key points and you have several different working sessions around this. And just for reference, some standards take years to develop. So Indeed. And, it's and, a and fast to, process. And years to go into practice. Like I remember reading somewhere that, yes. uh, that it takes maybe seven years from the time that a standard comes out, uh, is distributed, and Dr. Smith uh, actually then incorporates that, that standard in, in, in his or her practice. That's right. And so, uh, you know, the, the revision process takes a long time. And because we go for consensus, there's balloting and voting throughout. And then once you've completed, a, you know, a kind of a final draft of the standard, um, before it actually uh, goes into the wild, you know, there's several different kind of final balloting votes um, and revisions that then have to go. And then we start talking about as well, um, how are we planning to maintain, evangelize and enable others to adopt the standard? So that's also baked into the process. Right, right. So Geraldine, I'm very eager to hear your take on this standards development too, because your membership, you have about 19,000 members, I believe in the American College of Radiology, isn't that right? Well, we usually use a number of about 38,000, oh. um, which incorporates all our trainees. And so a little bit larger than that. Yeah, but I mean, th this business of standards development, I can't think of anything really 
more important uh, and more potent and and more impactful on the field. I mean, goodness gracious, radiologists, this is what you are required to do. I mean, that's that's heavy duty stuff. It is, um, and again, it's it's sort of multifaceted. So we call them practice parameters and technical standards. So a technical standard is, you know, we use a phantom and your MR unit has to be able to detect or we have to be able to see on the images you know, to a certain level of resolution. That's a technical standard. Practice parameters are, this is how we would typically expect you to, you know, perform and interpret this study. Medicine is an art as well as a science. So we have to be thoughtful there about, you know, making sure that we're not putting in place, you know, edicts that say the only way to do this is is what we've laid out here mm. knowing that depending on the patient depending on the clinical circumstances and depending on the judgment of the physician who we hold to the highest personal professional ethical standards that there are there may be there may be some some variation in how those things are done so that's a very robust process very much like you, you were talking about Michelle it happens through our ACR council which is a house of delegates from across the country and, and certain professional groups um, those practice parameters and technical standards are reviewed in detail. They are, they are refreshed every so often. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that is a, that's a very robust process. Sort of on the, on the leading edge, though, very much um, in the area of AI, this is something that is evolving as, we, as we're living it, right? So in that, in that space, what we've done is come together with, um, with other stakeholders to say, okay, here are the, here's the roadmap. Here are the here are the guideposts. I think that's something we're going to evolve over the years. But right now, that's much more general. That's we need to protect patients. It needs to be effective. We haven't necessarily gone all the way to, to having practice parameters and technical standards that can go through our existing process around AI. Geraldine, the top burner issues for ACR right now. What would you what would you say are the primary areas of interest for the organization? Well, again, you know, there's a lot going on at the ACR. We um, are definitely concerned about reimbursement. Um, we were facing about a 10, 11% reimbursement cut. Uh, not the scope of this interview, but a well-intentioned shift of uh, payment to some of our primary care and pediatrics and to our medicine colleagues. But in the context of the budget neutral Medicare program, that meant that that shifted dollars away from other physicians. So we were able to mitigate that, but only for a year. So that's a lot of work because, you know, again, we, we need fair reimbursement for what we do to be able to, to provide services. So that's definitely important. I think a, a growing focus on health equity. You know, we realize that we do so much for so many patients, but there are patients who don't get the benefit of what we do you know, differential disparities in outcomes from breast cancer for black women, you know, in lack of access to, you know, limb salvage procedures for diabetics in certain zip codes, these called interventional radiology deserts. So a lot of opportunities specific to radiology to drive health equity. And excuse me, I interrupt you right there because uh, uh, there's a, a lot of conversation that AI may help radiology out immensely in that in that area, that AI may be able to bring radiologic services to parts of the world, for example, that are totally without it. Um, is is I mean I, I would think that ACR would be certainly interested in in advancing and pursuing that effort. 
for sure, um, just this past week, we published along with many other organizations, the Lancet Commission on uh, the value of imaging for low and middle income countries. You know, when you're resource constrained, what's, well, how do you justify making in, uh, infrastructure investments in imaging? And there is a huge economic benefit to uh, building an imaging infrastructure. So clearly AI is going to be part of doing that at scale because as we look at certain countries, there is simply not the radiology workforce to support that infrastructure investment. So I think we, we absolutely have to think about a future that, you know, where we are using AI to augment the performance of human radiologists. Indeed, indeed. Um, and, and may I ask you, does ACR uh, collaborate with any other uh, programs, any other organizations, especially with regard to perhaps these global efforts that are attempting to bring radiology to other parts of the world? Thank you. I love that question because it is actually one of our strategic priorities is the development of external relationships. We have close collaborations with other radiology societies, both here and uh, across the globe. We are uh, executive committee member of the International Society of Radiology. But, uh, you know, perhaps outside the normal collaborations in radiology, we have a memorandum of understanding with Mackay. Um, to connect with the development and engineering community. We work very closely with the American Medical Association. Specifically, they have an ed hub where they put content from many specialties. We were the first professional organization to, to, to put content on that. It's really important for us to be able to connect with other, with other providers. Um, increasingly, we're collaborating with patient organizations and mm -hmm. very important to us to bring the patient's voice into our policymaking. Um, and I could go on. It, it is definitely part of our approach to advancing our goals that we build collaborations with other stakeholders. Right. And Michelle, I know that uh, uh, these public uh, programs that uh, attempt to uh, bring services to underserved uh, areas of, of the world, that this is something that's dear to, to your heart as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, uh, things that, uh, that your affiliations and your organizations have been doing with regard to uh, social welfare programs, public, public health welfare programs evolving uh, radiology? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, I actually want to touch on something Geraldine brought up, you know, in terms of, you know, the opportunity AI has to, um, you know, democratize or increase access to radiology. I, I think we have some work to do on the technical side as well to make that successful or, or to support that cause because you know today um, it's extremely expensive to develop AI and you know it is a big data problem today but I think in um, in our field and in IEEE there's a lot of effort to start thinking about how do we work with small data and make algorithms more effective on small data from a technical side as as we develop these algorithms. And then the other thing is um, because that will have a big impact on reducing uh, the computing costs typically required. And so I, I, I've heard a lot from um, counterparts in radiology that you know one of the big detractors or, or hurdles around AI adoption as well as, hey, only the larger hospitals can um, afford to bring on these algorithms because they're the ones that have the budget for things like you know cloud technology or or you know hp high performance computers um and things like that to actually use ai so i, I think we've got some work to do to support this development um 
in, in terms, well, I'll pause there. I was going to say, I, I could go on to. I, I know, actually, I think that that's a great point because, you know, I'm thinking about the pharmaceutical industry and I'm thinking that very, very often when that first wave of, an, of a new intervention or a new drug comes out, it's terribly expensive uh, and uh, it takes a while for those uh, those costs to come down. And one can certainly see a, re a reasonable analogy here with the technologies of, uh, of artificial intelligence. Geraldine, are, are you seeing that as, as well? Prohibitive costs in uh, uh, implementing uh, AI technologies right now? I don't think so. Um, we did do a survey and uh, recently through our Data Science Institute and it, is a, it was a relatively small number of the res, uh, respondents who were using AI at all. Mm -hmm. And a significant sub-segment of those were using algorithms that had been developed in-house. So I'm not sure that the average practicing radiologist is currently thinking about what is the price of, this, of my using this tool. But clearly, we will have to come to terms with that. And, and to your point, Michelle, there's been an enormous amount of money invested the people who've done that are going to be looking for a return on it. So it's a it's a big question to which I certainly don't know the answer. Um, the big question is where do we capture that in terms of who, who pays for it? So Geraldine, uh, let us spend a minute talking about conflicts of interest, perhaps about your leadership within ACR. Uh, I'm familiar with some other medical uh, organizations. Uh, I sat on the board of one uh, for uh, three years. And I'll tell you, virtually every physician who sat on that board had very substantial ties to industry. And it's totally understandable because when an individual becomes known in his or her field, that's when the telephone rings and there's some private marketplace uh, technology firm that wants to have you as a consultant. And you know, it's a feather. It's a feather in your cap. So clearly, I, I, I would think that the leadership within ACR, many of your individuals, also have ties and affiliations to the private sector, uh, and thus uh, there are questions about conflicts of interest that you know inevitably emerge. How do you handle that? Yeah, it's a great question and something that we spent a lot of time thinking through a number of years ago. Uh, our my predecessor is Chair Jim Brink. Um, asked me to lead a task force to, to, to look at this. So um, there were a number of things that we needed to do to make the process robust. Um, you know, we certainly needed to make sure that you were um, given a, a seamless platform and you know, that sort of the, the logistics supported our goals around disclosure. But I think like many organizations, we shifted towards, you know, tell us about your relationships rather than tell us whether or not you have conflicts. We'll judge whether we think that your relationships present a conflict. And we've, we've introduced this in, even into the process of our meeting. So every board member, when they present their relevant relationships are presented um, so that those hearing can, you know, we, as you say, we certainly want people who are expert and people who have the perspective on the world in which we practice but we need to understand their incentives and, you know, and where they're being um, potentially influenced. You know, um, I think that we've all seen some, some negatives about where physicians have been influenced by surprisingly small amounts of money. Um, so it's important to go back to your original question about trustworthiness, that we, that we are transparent about that. 
we have been influenced by societies such as ASCO, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncologists, who actually, they actually put their, their conflicts on their website or their relationships. Um, ours are available, um, you know, in certain circumstances, we're not hiding them, but um, we've, we've really tried to think this through um, and, and make sure that it's a process that supports those goals around credibility and trustworthiness. It's, it's particularly acute in this in these discussions around AI because um, you know the companies that are involved in this are are they like to be collaborative they like to bring people in um, but it's very important for us to know who are you talking to specifically who's paying you you know what and what other incentives Medicare obviously has been has been very proactive with the Sunshine Act in saying you know it might not be money but if it's you know, a gift to support your lab, or even if it's a fancy dinner, you the people who are trusting you to make um, informed decisions or make decisions on their behalf need to know how you're being incentivized. Indeed, and and I've I've done a little bit of work in conflict of interest, and I can tell you that no individual has ever, to my knowledge, admitted yes. Indeed, I have a very substantial conflict of interest. What I'm what I'm saying is, I like your kind of criterion approach here. That is to say, check the box here. If 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 this is part of your uh, work relationship, if this is part of this is, then you indeed have a conflict of interest, and it either this could simply be disclosed, uh, or we have to manage. It, uh, in, a, in a particular way. Michelle, you work in the private sector. Uh, so you work in this world of, of, com of competitiveness of, uh, of organizations and, and clearly where uh, private sector entities are trying to compete successfully and, 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 and trying to get a leg up on, on the competition. Do you have anything that you would uh, care to, to add to this, this conversation about uh, conflicts of interest and uh, trying to maintain as much objectivity about your work products as possible? It's true. It can be a challenge to keep the two different roles, you know, completely divided or separate. Um, inevitably, you know, there are things that you learn from each one that kind of intersects. So, um, you know, that is something that I think anyone joining a leadership role at a professional organization uh, needs to have an approach to managing. And, um, you know, at IEEE, we also have a very strict code of ethics, which you will like, John, <laughs> because we all have to sign that. Um, and, you know, it details out, it's, it's sort of our version of the Hippocratic Oath. Um, but it details out kind of, hey, this is the type of conduct that's expected of you. We are also big on transparency. So anytime I contribute to a standard or do any kind of activity, I have to disclose, uh, you know, in the introduction, I'll have both all my affiliations um, listed if I'm giving a presentation or anything like that. Um, and then there are some areas as well where, you know, if the organizing committee deems that, hey, your affiliation um, does conflict with you know, the objective of this either program, initiative or standard, um, then those are things that the organizing committee, as Geraldine mentioned, need to manage. Um, and you know, certainly we can also restrict certain types of participation if uh, that conflict of interest is identified to be too strong. Right. So, uh, uh, Michelle, I'd like to uh, 
uh, end really on on a question that uh, you suggested we we discuss because it seg- what you just said segues very nicely uh, into this, namely that you know when you talk about compliance, when you talk about conflicts of interest, and you talk about ethics in the same breath of that, it it it, it sounds very negative, right? I mean, it, it sounds like ethics is yet another layer of responsibility that we're imposing on healthcare professionals, but it need not be that way. We, In fact, it should not be that way. We, we should be framing ethics to them in a in a positive kind of way, and I'm wondering if 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 you and then Geraldine might might end our, our interview talking about the positive framing of, of ethics for the uh, membership of a particular discipline or organization. Yeah, I'm happy to kick off. Um, you know, I, I always tie it back to and and the reason members should get excited and and um, not see ethics as a burden is because like let's go back to the opportunities that we talked about earlier for AI and radiology and just the sheer potential we have to empower radiologists, not, you know, um, and augment them, not necessarily do any damage or replace them. We're so far from that. um, And that will probably never happen, quite frankly. But um, that opportunity is something, you know, we should unlock for everyone in society. And when we think about patient outcomes, like they should all have access to, um, you know, good diagnoses, um, radiologists, good um, patient care. And I think that's important when we talk about AI and radiology and, and ethics. And Geraldine, framing ethics in a positive way. So I would start with the fact that it is a privilege to be trusted with the care of another individual. So, you know, in, in you know, we should feel, you know, engaged and enthusiastic to, to do that in the best way possible. Um, and I think that that's, that's where our professional community is able to sustain us as we work through the difficult decisions together. But at the end of the day, it's a privilege and responsibility. And if you're gonna ask someone to trust you with their life, which our patients do, I don't think you have any other choice but to do that with the highest ethical standards. Lovely point on which to end. Thank you both, Dr. McGinty, Michelle Yi. Very much appreciated your uh, your remarks this afternoon. Uh, be well. Hope to speak to you again. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Good to see you both. Be safe. Cheers. Thanks again to Michelle Yi and Geraldine McGinty for their insights on the roles of organizations in standards development for the field of radiology. Our thanks also to Sam Kim, who did the audio production of this podcast, and to the staff at Emory University's Center for Ethics, who maintained the podcast webpage. We also thank the Advanced Radiology Services Foundation, the Georgia Clinical and Translational Science Alliance, and Emory's Department of Radiology and Imaging Sciences for their financial support of these podcasts. And in case you're wondering, that's me at the piano. Please follow the projects and activities of Emory University Center for Ethics on Facebook and Twitter and at our website, ethics.emory.edu. I'm John Banjer. Join us for future podcasts, and thanks very much for listening. <laughs>